the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. Hello and welcome to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. My name is Josh Edison. I am in Auckland, uh, New Zealand, which is not, you'll notice, Bucharest, Romania, and I am not Dr. MRX Dentith. So I think everything works out fine in the end. I found it interesting that you paused there trying to work out where you're located, which I think fits into an interesting aspect from last week's broadcast, where you claim that I was broadcasting from Karlsruhe in Germania. So I have a feeling that you are geospatially confused at this particular point in time. Would I be correct in thinking that, Joshua? If you mean to imply that I've somehow become untethered from physical reality and float through existence in no specific physical location, um, I'm afraid I can't com uh, comment on that. Isn't that what happens to everyone who has children? Well, to an extent, yes. I thought as much. But I've said too much. Actually, you haven't, you haven't really said enough. That's the problem. I know, I've said too much. I haven't said enough. And with that musical reference, we should probably crack on with the show. Let's just do that. To the news! To the news. To the news. Breaking, breaking, conspiracy theories in the news. We start this week with a correction to an error issued on this very podcast. In an earlier episode, we wrongly claimed that John D. Rockefeller was Jewish. He is not. Whilst the Rockefellers have long been claimed to be crypto-Judaic, this is not true. See, don't say we don't update our knowledge as new knowledge comes along. Although, truth be told, we don't. We just reformat our minds and start over from scratch. Uh, anyway, news. M, what's been happening? Happening, I should point out, was spelt with three Ps, which is such a delightful typo that I couldn't bring myself to edit it. Happening. That's lovely. I like it. Well, you know, it's the new slang. What's been hap 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 happening? which also anyway. is a slang invented by people with speech disfluency like myself. Anyway, in answer to your question of what's been hap, 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 happening, no idea. I've been finishing up work on a new volume I'm the editor for and have been ignoring the news entirely over the last week. But I do have a device here which generates news, not fake news, mind, just fictional news. And I've fed the last few months of episodes into this device, and we're going to see what it presents. Okay, so I've got a story here which sounds a bit far-fetched. Bear with me. Alright, so it goes, Trump sides with Putin in Finland and says Russia did not interfere in the 2016 presidential election. Um, th th that happened. Really? Yes, Trump had a summit in Finland this week. Uh, and he held a press conference where, standing beside Vladimir Putin, he said, my people came to me, Dan Coates came to me, they said they think it's Russia. I have President Putin, he just said it's not Russia. I'll say this, I don't see any reason why it would be. Really? He, he said that? He said that standing beside Vladimir Putin? Yep. Could you get any more conspiratorial? I mean, if you didn't think Putin already controlled Trump, you would kind of have to at least entertain the idea afterwards, or at least after this conference, that maybe he does. Well, yes, a lot of people found the spectacle remarkable for a bunch of reasons, but it's okay. Trump misspoke. He misspoke. Yes, in a press conference back in the US, he said that when he said would, he meant to say wouldn't. Okay, uh, can you read back what the revised statement would now sound like? 
Well, it would be, my people came to me, Dan Coates came to me, they said they think it's Russia. I have President Putin, he just said it's not Russia. I'll say this, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be. That doesn't quite sound right. Which is why people think Trump is backpedaling rather than correcting. Certainly seems like Trump took Putin at his word in Finland and then got a bollocking back home and has changed his mind in the guise of correcting the record. Uh, but once again, it's okay. Trump thinks Putin is marvellous because Putin has suggested agents of the Kremlin come and help in the collusion inquiry. So Trump thinks the people suspected of being behind the collusion should help investigate said purported collusion? Yes. This was a bad week to take off. Okay, uh, let's see what else my doodad has. Uh, Twitter bans Russia. Well, that sounds dramatic. Uh, and also, it kind of happened. Um, last week, Twitter got rid of lots of bots and fake accounts that were thought to have emanated from Russia, causing some people to lose tens of thousands of followers. Uh, there's also a story going around that the hashtag walkaway, which was meant to represent Democrats turning to the Republican Party, was connected to Russia. Although the evidence for that seems to be a bit of an unwarranted conspiracy theory. We're blaming Russia for everything, so why not this? Although I guess that does fit in with some of the recent research, which claims that the move to the right in the white American electoral base predated Trump and was actually over the Black Lives Matter movement. White people, they don't like feeling uncomfortable. Okay, time for one more randomly generated story. Ooh, here's a goodie. Free Tommy in Auckland. I don't know what that means, but it sounds grand. It sounds awful and you know it. The, the Free Tommy movement surrounds the case of Tommy Robinson, an English far-right activist. He co-founded and served as spokesman and leader for the English Defence League, a racist Islamophobic group based, funnily enough, in the UK. In May, he was sentenced to 13 months imprisonment for contempt of court. He broke a court order by publishing identifiable information of defendants entering court during proceedings, and it was not his first conviction for doing so. Somehow, this far-right activist has become a beacon for the free speech movement because he's been jailed for trying to get the truth out there, man. Except, of course, all he was doing was providing identifiable information about some people who may or may not be guilty of a crime in order to agitate his followers. And the Auckland bit? Uh, well, that brings us back to last week's topic, the Free Speech Coalition. Um, about 100 people turned out for a free speech protest in Auckland over the weekend, and some of them were carrying Free Tommy placards. So people marching for free speech for far-right activists found that they were marching for activists interested in far-right speech. Yep. This news generator is great. We should use it every week. Yeah, I'm, I'm worried it's too accurate, suspiciously accurate that's all right the next story is obviously nonsense it goes trump writes in sharpie no collusion and it turns out he can't even spell collusion properly um ring that chime right and we're back um so once again this week we've chosen to to part the veil to draw aside the curtain behind which the man is telling you not to look at the man behind the curtain um and let you in a little bit more into the the dark seedy underworld of academic book writey publishy stuff you had I no idea where you were going it. with that metaphor did you no idea whatsoever not fully not fully no but we're talking we're, we're, we're taking a behind the scenes look at um the works of one says here dr mrx dentith oh i know i know that person they're a charlatan mm. Mm. yes well uh, apparently they're making a book called taking conspiracy theory seriously making a book they're making a book are they are they are they making a book are they pounding the paper down uh, 
pulping things, laying yes. down glue, uh, inscribing words onto pages using archaic ink-based technologies. They're, they're making a book. I know of no other way to make a book. Do you? Well, you write a book in a word processor, you email files to an editor, they send it to a place in China. In China, they print the book using some kind of advanced kind of photocopying technology, basically. Uh, it gets put into a binding. The binding gets sent around the world. It's sold in bookstores, and then eventually you get a royalty check. Mm, sounds like you know a little bit too much about this process. I unfortunately do know too much about this process because I, gentle listener, I am that Dr. MR Extended, and <gasps> I have been making a book. Good Lord in heavens. So, yes, I mean, I, I believe you've mentioned this a little bit before, and certainly you mentioned it in the news section at the start of this episode. Um, but we thought it would be a good thing to it because it's, it's what, what shape is it in at the moment? It's uh, approaching completion, I understand. It's in the shape of a whole bunch of word files, basically. So, yes, since December of last year, I've been working on a new volume, Taking Conspiracy Theories Seriously which is an edited volume of some pre-existing work and some new work in conspiracy theory theory. And my job as editor has been to kind of corral academics and get them to produce work, which in some cases has been very, very easy, and in other cases has been occasionally nail-biting on getting things in on deadline as well as writing a set of introductions, because the book is in two sections, and a set of conclusions, because once again, the book is in two sections. So I'm both a contributor to the book and an editor of the book. Mm. And at the moment, the book exists as files, but those files are pretty much complete, and so those files are... If not with the publisher, they're transferring through the ether where they'll then end up being sent to China once again to be printed in a book. Hmm. So I notice, I mean, you're, you're the editor, you're writing introductions and conclusions and so on. Is, is this your project as it were, or did it sort of start, is it something you started and roped people into, or did it kind of start as a group effort between a bunch of you? Let me take you back in time to 2016, a era before Trump, before Brexit, a kinder, more pastel time. And I had a paper published when inferring to a conspiracy theory might be the best explanation in the Social Epistemology Journal. And the editor of Social Epistemology, uh, which I think is still James Collier, then went, oh, this is great. We would like to commission some reply pieces to go into the Social Epistemology Review and Reply Collective. Can you suggest some people who might be good to reply to this thing? Uh, and he'd already tapped Lee Basham as one of the responders. He wanted to find out whether there was anyone else I could suggest. So I gave him a few names. And so Lee Basham wrote a reply to my paper, which wasn't really a criticism of the paper, but more a glowing endorsement. So he agreed with me on all substantial issues and pointed out some natural consequences of where my paper led. And James Collier went, do you want to write a reply to Lee's reply? And I was going, sure, I will write a reply to something which praises the paper, and it can just be a mutual back-passing situation. So yeah. Lee thinks my paper is great, I think Lee's response is great, we can just generate 
material where we're agreeing with each other furiously for long periods of time. So I then thought maybe we need to get someone else involved in the conversation who might have a slightly different perspective. So Patrick Stokes, a philosopher at Deakin over in Melbourne, Australia. I say over as if I'm actually back in Auckland. It's not really over anywhere from Bucharest. Well, it's just it's just further over, quite quite a long way over. It's really stretching the notion mm. of it being mm. just over there to say that just over in Melbourne. But if I was in Auckland, saying just over in Melbourne would make complete sense. Then it'd definitely allow it, yes. yes. And so Pat has a slightly more sceptical take on conspiracy theory theory than Lee and I do. So Pat wrote a reply to Lee and to me. I then wrote a reply both to Pat and to Lee. And as we're going through writing these replies, James Collier gets in contact and goes, this actually seems like this could be the basis for a fairly interesting volume. Now, at around about the same time, Lee and I co-authored a response that was then co-signed by a bunch of other academics to a piece that appeared in Le Monde in 2016, so Le Monde being the major French newspaper. And this less than one page article, which was basically an opinion piece written by a bunch of French social scientists and one UK-based social scientist, Karen Douglas, was critical of the French state's intervention into conspiracy theorizing. So the French state has produced an educational kit, which they give out to schools to help teachers combat talk of conspiracy in French polities. And the opinion writers for the Le Monde piece went, these seem like untested mechanisms. So basically, we're recommending the state take a pause on this initiative and look at the pre-existing research we're doing to see what the proper response would be. And when Lee and I read this separately, we found the piece kind of rose some red flags, some things that made us think there's some really weird stuff going on here the French social scientists are assuming, such as seemingly assuming that all belief in conspiracy theories is bad, which of course goes against the ethos of what's coming out of the philosophy of conspiracy theories at the moment. We penned this response piece, we got a whole bunch of people to, uh, to co-sign it with us, the authors of the Le Monde piece, Sands, Karen Douglas, then wrote a response to our response. We wrote responses to that response. And that then gave us the material to devote an entire book to conspiracy theory theory. Hmm. So is this, is this going to be sort of an academic text or is it for a, a more general audience? It is aimed at an academic audience, so it's coming out from Roman and Littlefield. Roman and Littlefield are mostly known for producing academic textbooks, although they also have imprints that produce, say, a social epistemology series, a series in psychology. We're coming out in their social epistemology series, but it is very much a book aimed at an academic audience. Although that being said, I think much of the material in the text is actually amenable to a general audience reading as well. Mm. Oh, that's good. Now, I've I've uh, had the the good fortune of being able to read sort of an abstract um, of this book and an overview of the chapters and so on and so on and so on. 
maybe maybe first of all your your co-authors here um their names that for the most part will be familiar i think to long time listeners of this podcast in fact some of them are people who have appeared on this very podcast uh, in your interviews yes uh can you give us a quick quick rundown of um who's in it what we might have heard from them before or if they're new to our listeners a couple of the names i don't think were familiar to me all right so people we've heard from before we have martin orr from boise state idaho i've co-written papers with marty marty is a good friend of mine he's a sociologist i'm a philosopher but we find that we've been able to kind of bridge that conceptual divide uh jenna hustings who's also from boise state also a good friend of mine uh we have met when i was in boise state last year yes it was last year when i gave Mm. a talk at boise state university so we've also heard her on the podcast charles pigton who of course we interviewed for the podcast about three years ago now has it really been that long it probably was it was before i I came to romania uh who's based down in otago so we've heard from him as well and then people who have been mentioned but have never actually featured on the podcast. Lee Basham from South Texas College, Patrick Stokes from Deakin in Australia, Curtis Hagen, who's now retired, uh, Marius Raab from Bamberg in Bavaria slash Germany, and David Cody, who's just across the ditch from you in Tasmania. And... For the most part, they're all philosophers, apart from Marius, Jenna, and Marty. Marius is a psychologist. Jenna and Marty are sociologists. So it is a slightly interdisciplinary book, and it's a book which takes conspiracy theory seriously in that it takes conspiracy theory as something we should study to be a serious concern, But it also makes the claim that we need to treat each and every individual conspiracy theory we encounter in the world as a serious proposition that needs investigating. Now, going through the the sort of the abstract, the the overviews of each chapter here, there seems to be, at least in the earlier part, a bit of tension between philosophy and perhaps some of the other social sciences. Uh, Having read through it, there seemed to be a bit of the other social scientists treat conspiracy theories this way. And we don't think that's right. Do you? Uh, I mean, you said it's an interdisciplinary book, so obviously some of these other social scientists are represented. But do you find philosophy is a little bit at odds with what's with with some of the other um, other other disciplines' take on conspiracy theories? I do, and I do from the sheer fact that the reading of the literature I think shows this kind of weird divergence, and also because as someone involved in the cost network action. Uh, Compact, which is the EU looking at conspiracy theories project I'm involved in. I'm very much aware that my particular position on conspiracy theory is often at odds with the other people working in the network, and that does seem to be divided somewhat on disciplinarian grounds, particularly between social scientists and non-social scientists. And this basically gets us down to A term of art we owe to Joel Bunting and Jason Taylor from a 2010 paper, Conspiracy Theories and Fortuitous Data, where they kind of speciate two approaches towards conspiracy theory we find in the literature. There's generalism. Generalism is the thesis that we can treat conspiracy theories as a class, 
and thus we can judge conspiracy theories because of the membership of that class. And generalists, by and large, take it that belief in conspiracy theories is pathological or irrational in some sense. And so because of that, we have a prima facie suspicion of these things called conspiracy theories. Philosophers, by and large, have adopted the other position, which is called particularism. And particularism is the thesis that actually we have to judge conspiracy theories like we do any other theory. We have to judge the theories on the available evidence and come to a decision as to whether we should believe or disbelieve this particular theory in this particular instance. So particularists say you can't judge conspiracy theories as a class, you have to judge them on their evidential merits. And so in that particular respect, there is a weird dichotomy in the literature between social scientists who by and large are generalists and philosophies, philosophies, philosophers who are by and large particularists. And I noticed going through the outline, it looks like most of your, most if not all of your contributors do go for the particularism, except perhaps Patrick Stokes. He seems to have a slightly different take on it. But he seems to be the, the lone voice there. Pat's view on this is that he accepts that epistemically speaking, so from the theory of knowledge perspective, many conspiracy theories have turned out to be true. And so because of that, we do have to assess conspiracy theories on their evidential merits. We can't just condemn them for belonging to the class of things called conspiracy theories. But he advances what he calls a reluctant particularism. And by reluctant particularism, he goes, well, look, conspiracy theorizing is a social practice. It's a practice that's done in socially constituated situations. And in those socially constituated situations, there are a whole bunch of narratives and things that people often tap into when they conspiracy theorize. And some of these narratives actually cause harm. So, I mean, the obvious point is, Lots of conspiracy, well, I say lots, some conspiracy theories tap into international banking cartels. And quite often those international banking cartel conspiracy theories can be rightfully accused of being crypto anti-Semitic. So rather than going, oh, it's the Jews, the Jews are ruining the world, people go, no, no, it's the, uh, it's, it's the banking families, the banking families are the bad ones. By the way, all the members of the banking families are Jewish. So they kind of engage in that crypto anti-Semitism, and of course that allows fairly harmful claims to be made in society on the basis of, I'm just asking questions, ma'am. So Pat's worried about conspiracy theorizing, and so thinks there needs to be a natural reticence towards conspiracy theorizing in public, which is what he calls a reluctant particularism, a reluctance to engage in the social practice of conspiracy theorizing. And Pat has two chapters in the book, one chapter in section one, one chapter in section two. And I think it's fair to say that Lee Bashman and I take Pat to task for some aspects of his reluctant particularism in section one. And then Charles Pigden and I take Pat to task on aspects of his reluctant particularism in section two. My general theory is that particularism has to rule the roost. I appreciate the kind of concerns that Pat 
brings forward as to a reluctance to engage in particular kinds of conspiracy theorizing. But I think we can also address that by talking about what particularism actually entails. It sounded a little bit like a... Um a conflict between theory and practice in some sense, that in, in theory, yes, we should treat all conspiracy theories um, individually on their own merits, but in practice there are these dangerous um, sort of, you know, racist, prejudicial, whatever ideas that, ha that, that, that as a matter of sort of historical fact, as a matter of context, have been enabled by conspiracy theories. Is that is that sort of the worry there? Or? Yeah, and I think Part of the issue, because I mean, we find this issue in other disciplines as well. So scientism, for example, where people inappropriately apply scientific theories to things which are just not amenable to scientific investigation. Uh, notably, when people try to resolve ethical concerns, we go, oh, we can just do science to resolve ethics. And as philosophers have been pointing out, that doesn't actually work because yeah. ethics is about ought claims and it's very hard to derive claims about how people should behave from a scientific investigation of the world. It's just not the kind of thing that it results in. So people are bad at applying theories across the board. You find bad examples in history, you find bad examples in psychology, you find all kinds of examples across the board. And the moral hearers, actually sometimes it's quite hard to be a theorist, whether you're a scientist, a psychologist, or a conspiracy theorist. Sometimes it's actually quite difficult to engage in that in a rigorous fashion. And we know from experience of other scientific or theoretical investigations in the world that there's a kind of often a high price of entry to being a scientist. And in many respects, we should probably hold conspiracy theorists to the same kind of high standards, that if you are going to theorize about conspiracies, then you need to actually do a proper job of it. And so part of the problem is that in the same way there are people who misapply scientific theorizing to things in the world, there are also going to be examples of people who engage in bad conspiracy theorizing, because the practice of being a particularist conspiracy theorist is actually a lot more difficult than maybe many of us actually have thought. Right. Well, if I can, if I can just throw in a few spoilers there, uh, block your ears at home if you don't want to to hear how the book ends. Um, but it's probably not not a big surprise that uh, your your conclusions seem like they're saying the sorts of things that, that you and indeed we have been saying on this podcast for quite some time, that a, a particular viewpoint is what you want, that conspiracy theories are not prima facie irrational and that each should be uh, uh, evaluated on its own merits. D d is, is this sort of a, are you finding it a bit of a vindication for yourself or are you finding that your views have actually changed over the years and, and as a result of these sorts of discussions? I mean, it's obvious my views have changed to a certain extent over the years, because when I first started writing the PhD, I thought that I was going to be basically pointing out why conspiracy theories are examples of the inference to any old explanation. And yet, of course, the book starts with a reprint of my social epistemology article when inferring to conspiracy theory might be the best explanation. So I've, I've quite obviously flipped over time. 
and gone from being a skeptic of conspiracy theories to someone who defends conspiracy theorizing. Whether I've had any major sea changes in the last few years, probably not. It's been a case of dealing with objections and finding ways to talk through those objections to point out why I think particularism needs to be the modus operandi for conspiracy theorizing and indeed actually any kind of theorizing and any kind of endeavor. So I probably haven't made any major changes or changed my mind in a major way. But I've certainly been refining those views. And this book is a kind of natural culmination of the work I've been doing in the last few years, particularly the work I was doing in Romania last year. So when I was in Romania at the ECOG, my project was on investigating conspiracy theories. And the final chapter of this book is kind of a natural culmination of the work that I spent a year on in Bucharest from September 2016 to September 2017. Well, there you have it then. So um, do, do you have an idea of time frames? Is it still a little bit up in the year, or do you know when this book might actually be out there? The book is going to be available December of this year. Ah, well, jolly good. That's, that's not actually that far away, is it, I suppose? It's not, no. And it should actually be much more affordable than the last book. So listeners to this podcast who have gone, oh, we should buy a copy of Dr. M.R. X. Dentith's book, Oh my God, it's so expensive. And it is. It's an expensive volume. It's about 100 US. This volume, I believe, is going to retail much closer to about 40 US with a electronic copy, which is even cheaper. So this might be the perfect Christmas gift to give to your beloved family member who also likes academic treatises on conspiracy theories. Mm. I haven't really thought that one through. Maybe it's a perfect Christmas gift to give yourself this Christmas. Why not give yourself the gift of taking conspiracy theories seriously from Roman and Littlefield? Let that sweet, sweet royalty money come flooding in those torrents of cash that they firehose at you academics. So this is actually going to be interesting in that my previous book, which has a very high price point, sells copies every year so i get a small royalty check this book is cheaper so of course the royalties i'm getting are much more reduced even though it's the same royalty level which is about five percent of course because the book is cheaper i get less money from each copy sold but because the book is cheaper in theory more copies of it will actually sell so i'm look i'm interested in when 2020 comes around, which will be the first time I'll get to compare and contrast two different royalty checks to see just how well the book sells and whether my theory that if a book is cheaper, more people are likely to buy it is actually true. My suspicion is mm. it is. Well, we'll have to compare. I um, ha- have never published a book, it must be said. Um, although I did, the company that I work for became publicly listed a few years ago, and as employees, we were given a chance to buy shares in the company. So I get a dividend check every six months, and and any, every time I get it, it I sort of I, I look at my my sweet dividend check and think, hey, uh, someone's going to be upsizing their combo this evening. Um, so we, we we'll have to see if you can if 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 your um, royalty. F- funds can in any way compete with my with my the, the the fruits of my stock market endeavors i'm a high-flying share 
well, not trader, I suppose. I'm a shareowner. That's what I am. I'm a shareholder. That's the official word. I'm a shareholder. See, my my metric is, will my royalty checks allow me to buy a decent bottle of whiskey? And that's basically all I'm concerned about. Will the royalty checks right. be sufficient to buy me a decent bottle of whiskey? This year's royalty check, the answer was no. But next year's royalty check, well, I'm hoping to be rolling in the mm. whiskey moolah. So there we go. Well, go go buy Dr. Dentist's book, um, and then maybe you won't have to keep embezzling funds from our Patreon account, which I assume you do. I have no proof of that whatsoever, but I would certainly if I were in charge. Well, I'm glad you're not in charge then. <laughs> I'm really not. Uh, so... Um, if we've reached the point where I'm accusing you of, of uh, embezzlement and, and, and grand fraud, we've probably, we've probably got to Josh, the end of the episode. We don't make enough money on the Patreon account to, for me to engage in grand fraud. Well, I don't know. Those are some shiny-looking glasses you're wearing. Are they solid platinum? No, I have a feeling they're just Deny aluminium. it. Deny it to my face. If you do realize uh, you can actually go to the Patreon page and look at the number of people who are donating money and how much money we're getting a month. I think you could actually do, you could do some basic research there and realize that grand fraud is just off the table. I don't have time for basic research. What am I, some sort of academic sitting there in my ivory tower getting books published so that people will remember me for decades after I'm gone? No, I'll die alone and unloved. I assume it's true. You will. I mean, that, I mean, that's actually already been arranged. It's just, mm, uh, it's just, yes. we're just, we're just waiting for time to catch up now. And you'll just stand on my grave, just showering that Patreon, Patreon royalty money all over me and dancing. Oh yes, yeah, so believe me. I've I've got a separate jig for every friend of mine that when they die, I'm going to dance on their grave. Well, it's something to look forward to. It's going to be um, the most successful things... YouTube channel I ever run. Mm. Speaking of things to look forward to, so you are back in New Zealand in a week and a half, is it? Well, basically, I'm back on the 2nd of August. Right. So does that – will you be flying next week around this time, or will we have one more episode no, before you're so back we'll, in No, so we'll country? be recording next week, and then I leave the Tuesday after. Right, okay. So we still so have one, more, one episode. more episode. And I suppose this is a good time to point out that if people have spotted that the sound is really, really wonky this week mm. – Skype decided to upgrade itself from a version of Skype where I had a lot of control over audio to a version of Skype which gives me virtually no control over audio whatsoever. And this means that this week's episode and next week's episode, the sound is probably going to be slightly weird, but it's all right because in a month's time, there will be the fun and excitement of a recording where we're both in the same room mm. at the same time. I say a month's time because I arrive back on Auckland on a Thursday, which is our traditional recording day, and I very much doubt I'm going to be in the position to record a podcast no, the day I get back. I wouldn't have thought so, no. no. But yes, so we'll, we won't have to be relying on flinging our voices at each other over the ether via Skype. Incidentally, I'm, I'm, on, uh, I'm on Windows... And the Windows 10 Skype app is, app is equally as rubbish, but at least on Windows I can, um, and I, it will also allow me to install an older version side by side. So yes, well, things aren't on quite Mac as dire for me. But, to uh, upgrade mm. as soon as you launch the application, it's really, really annoying. 
Right. Well, what I'm hearing is that we should uh, stop recording this episode, hang up our Skype call, and then hunt down the current developers of Skype and uh, have a have a sternly worded, worded conference with them. It's true. It is now time to play the greatest game. Yes. Mm, the greatest game. Hungry, hungry hippos? Yes. Let's play hungry, hungry hippos. And we won't invite the Skype people, and that'll show them. Yes, it brilliant. Sure I like this will. plan. Let's do it. Righto. Well, we're gonna go. We've decided what we're doing next. Um, what you're doing next is stopping listening to this podcast. Uh, you'll know it's time to do so when we've both said goodbye. 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 You've been listening to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. It is written, researched, and performed by Josh Addison, aka Monkey Fluids, and M R X Dentith, aka Conspiracism on Twitter. This podcast is available where all good podcasts can be found, as well as iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. It can also be watched on YouTube. Just search for the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, or, if you happen to be technophobic, consult the auguries. You can support the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy via our Patreon page, as listed in the podcast description, or just by searching for us on Patreon. You can also support us via the Podbean patronage system, if that is more your style. You do you. If you want to get in contact with us, why not email us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com, or find us on Facebook. And remember, it's just a step to the left.